High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts from around the globe and around all aspects of drugs and addiction. Today's episode is sponsored by Isaac, their National Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis. Visit their website at isaacone.org, I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to follow the science on marijuana. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. There is no safe drug supply unless it comes from a legal pharmacy. If you are around anyone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Hello again, High Truth listeners. Get ready to face a conversation on recovery. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev. Who are the faces of recovery? Well, there are the celebrities who've been open about their substance recovery. Jamie Lee Curtis, the Halloween star, stated, It is the secret shame that keeps people locked up in their disease. Matthew Perry from Friends waited until he was safely sober before writing his memoir so he could help others. Iron Man, Robert Downey Jr. said about addiction, Job one is get out of that cave. A lot of people do get out, but don't change. Elton John, Rocket Man, celebrated 30 years sober in 2020. He said, if I hadn't finally taken the big step of asking for help 30 years ago, I'd be dead. We love reading about the life and trials of celebrities. But addiction strikes all parts of society. It doesn't discriminate. Listen to High Truths episode number 96 with Chris Ibanez, who found recovery through cooking for the homeless. On episode number 88, Danny Darko Marciano talks about how he changed from being a career criminal full of body tattoos to being a children's entertainer. In episode 80, Ben Court tells his story of marijuana addiction and into being a nationally renowned recovery coach and author. Congressman Patrick Kennedy joined me in episode number 75 as a national spokesperson and advocate on mental health and addiction. Dominique McDowell shared his experience with methamphetamine to recovery in episode number 73 and how he now helps others as a peer counselor. Mark Azoulay described his journey from addiction to a psychologist who now treats people with addiction without medications. You could hear him on episode 71. And on episode number nine, Robert explains how he was homeless, on heroin, needing multiple surgeries for wounds and infection, and he became a straight-A student in computer science. There are 23 million people in America who are living in recovery. They are a testament of hope for those who struggle with addiction. And with that, let's hear our question of the day. Hello, my name is Albert Zamorodion, and I am a high school student graduating in 2024 and hope to become a doctor and be involved in research. Thank you, Dr. Lev, for speaking to our young leaders in healthcare group. I was inspired to hear about your life and what you do about drugs. My question is, there are many people who have addiction that we meet at school, work, or in our society. Many times we do not know they have this challenge. What is the best way to interact with people who have or had an addiction? Thank you, Albert. I was honored to be invited to your Young Leaders in Healthcare group, and you are the next generation in science and medicine, and I could see that you are on your way in learning from the past to make a brighter future, and you have an excellent question. And to discuss it, I invited Patty McCarthy, the CEO of Faces and Voices of Recovery. Faces and Voices of Recovery is a national recovery advocacy organization based in Washington, D.C., Prior to joining Faces and Voices, Patty was a senior associate with the Center of Social Innovation and served as a deputy director of SAMHSA's initiative on bringing recovery support to scale. To learn more about Patty McCarthy and Faces and Voices of Recovery, check out the High Truths show notes. Patty McCarthy, welcome to High Truths. 
Thank you. It's great to be here. Nice to see you, Dr. Lev. I'm very excited to see you again. And Patty, you are the faces and voices of recovery. And that's because you're the CEO of the organization. And the work you do in recovery is very important, but also personal. Can you share your journey with us? Absolutely. It's one of the things that I, you know, has been sort of the foundation of my personal and professional growth over the years, being able to know how to use my story in a way that influences others or just educates the public. So, um, and, and I'll share about how, kind of how I ended up in this this role. Uh, a lot of it is because of the gifts of my own personal recovery journey. I am a woman in long-term recovery. And for me, that means I haven't used alcohol or drugs in over 32 years. Um, so I, I say that only because I want others to know that long-term recovery is possible, but also if it wasn't for my recovery, I certainly wouldn't be here as the CEO of Faces and Voices, but I wouldn't have the career or the kids and the grandkids and the wonderful uh, life I have today. I wouldn't be a, a taxpayer, a homeowner, a, a voter, uh, all of those important things that make me who I am today. But my my recovery journey really started at the age of 17 when I went to uh, treatment for alcohol use and drug use uh, three times as a high school student. And so I experienced professional treatment, residential treatment, outpatient treatment, medication-assisted treatment at the age of 17. Wow. Um, yeah, uh, ant abuse for alcohol use as a teenager. Um I was very fortunate. I had people around me like my doctor, a guidance counselor, an, an alcohol drug counselor, my parents that really, um, you know, so I have to say I was privileged in many ways. And no, I, I acknowledge that because not not everyone has those opportunities. And I didn't stop then. I continued to use and in and, and about six more years. So I say that I'm a person, I'm a young person in long-term recovery, because really it started at the age of 23 when I, in, a senior in college and finally um, decided, you know, get, had enough and gave up my alcohol or drug use and um, found my pathway of recovery. But over this past, you know, three decades, more than half my lifetime, I've been able to um, learn a lot about, you know, what works and what doesn't work out there. Like, uh, what are the barriers? And so back in, um, I guess, you know, I had been working in the field. I was, I started as a, a child and family clinician, uh, not, not substance use, but behavioral health. And I was working with a lot of families impacted by substance use disorder. And, but then I became a, uh, an employee of the state of uh, a state employee working on prevention of substance use. So helping the community put strategies into place to prevent substance use, environmental strategies, policies. Got really interested in that, in the policy work, and then had the opportunity um, to, when the became open, um, to be the director of a statewide recovery community organization in the state of Vermont. And I did that for 10 years. So a lot of my work there was meeting with policymakers and, and organizing legislative awareness days uh, teaching people, you know, how to tell their stories and use it in a positive way to influence policy and to educate the public that, you know, it's okay to step out of um, our, our, you know, what was back then, you know, a lot of the um, shadows of anonymity where we weren't really publicly speaking. So that's when I found actually Faces and Voices of Recovery. And I said to myself, you know, there that's an organization at the national level that's talking about me. They're they're advocating for me. And I felt so empowered to know there was a national organization out there that was doing that work. And I, I said, I get I want to be part of that. I want to support it. And the rest is kind of history. I, you know, I had a lot of experience as running a nonprofit organization and then joined the board of Faces and Voices of Recovery, and in uh, eight years ago became the chief executive officer. So happy to be here and uh, be able to share a little bit about my story. 
Thank you for that. And again, I think it is always brave to share a difficult aspect of your life. Um, but tell us, what is Faces and Voices of Recovery? I know that it's a prestigious organization um, because when I was at ONDCP at the White House, it was a day that important people were coming that we had to pay attention to. And you were definitely one of those. So, but well, what is your, your mission? Is it um, you cover prevention, treatment, or is it just supporting people who are in recovery? You know, um, that's a good question. I mean, our mission really is just to, to support um, recovery. And, but, uh, but along with that, 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 that means that we need the whole continuum of care. We need uh, prevention, we need treatment, we need recovery support services, and we need harm reduction services. We need, you know, all of the support to help people in recovery. But our, our mission is really to, to like, like it says, is to put a face and a voice on recovery. And our, our, our real goal is to empower the recovery community to come together and, and um, be a voice. You know, if it, uh, our actual mission statement is that we are changing the way addiction and recovery are understood and embraced through advocacy, education, and leadership. So we envision a day when the whole world embraces uh, the diverse voices of individuals in recovery, and that we can um, eliminate discrimination and the injustices and the stigma related to substance use disorders. So by you know having that mission and vision, that's what that's everything we do is based around that. Um, so we have a national network of recovery community organizations. So we have over 175 member organizations that are part of Faces and Voices, and they're all doing similar work. They're doing public education and awareness. They're doing advocacy and, and public policy work, and they're doing recovery support services. So peer-based, peers helping peers, recovery coaching, uh, things like that. So they're operating recovery community organizations, recovery community centers in their own communities ac across the United States. And the good news is we're international too. We have uh, Faces and Voices of Recovery United Kingdom, uh, Brazil, South Africa, Canada. Um, there's a number of organizations that are modeled after Faces and Voices um, internationally now. So it's a it's a concept that works. It's worked in other for other social justice causes, and uh, so we. We were born really out of a summit in St. Paul, Minnesota in 2001. So we just celebrated our 21st year and we were Congratulations. actually back. At, we, we got together in St. Paul last year um, for our, our annual summit uh, where it all began, where people, you know, some of our pioneers and fund founders, kind of the visionaries got together and said, you know, we need an organization or we need we need a campaign to put a face and a voice on recovery. And that's where we that's who we are today. We continue to fulfill that mission. That's great. And you're very effective at doing that as well. So we have a question from Albert, who is an ambitious high school student. He wants to be a doctor and do research. And he says that he meets people who use drugs or alcohol or people who used in the past or, or present. And he's wondering what is the best way to interact with people who may be in recovery or have an addiction? That's great. And I really thank Albert for the question because I want to commend anyone who's coming into the, the, the healthcare field, doctors, um, nurses, students that um, want to know about how addiction and substance use disorders because it our healthcare workforce is so important to help people in recovery. And so he was asking really about three different types of people, three categories. We're talking about um, people who use drugs. And the best approach to, for Albert as he's learning about this really is to understand that people do use drugs. There's a lot of people that can use drugs recreationally, and that includes alcohol, um, but other drugs. And 
at the the time when we're talking with them in a in a medical setting or um in a community is to help them understand the 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 risks and how we reduce the harm that could happen um using drugs and how to stay safe and how to uh, protect themselves as well as their peers who they're using alcohol or drugs with so right. certainly that type of category of people then then he's talking about and, and there's a good example for that i like how you say with alcohol the national institute of alcoholism and alcohol abuse has a chart so i will tell my patients you know at your age um if you have more than seven drinks a week you're an at-risk drinker right and i'll say well what does that mean it means that you're more at risk for harms right so we have that for alcohol we have that for tobacco and for drug use it's uh uh, recreational drug use is not as clear, right? It's not as clear, and it's always been because of the the kind of which we're going to talk about more. But is really about you know the stigma and the shame around it. Um, that I think now people are learning that drug use is a part of life. I'm not saying that we condone it. I think it it's just a matter of how do we help people um, be safe. It, mm-hmm. It's like drunk driving or, or you know, that we don't want people drunk driving, driving drunk, but we, it's the same with seatbelts or, you know, preventing any, um, any danger. So that, those are the people that he, he, a student or a researcher will most likely come in c- contact with. And then there's the people who are currently um, seeking treatment. So they're trying to get help because they realize they have an addiction. They have a problem. They've identified a problem. And those are the people that you know, really looking at all the resources in the community, helping them understand that it's a health condition versus a moral issue, helping them understand that there's treatment available. And especially, you know, with opioid addiction, there's um, medications as well as alcohol addiction. And the research is growing around other types of medications that could be used for other substances. But, and then the third category of person that, uh, of the type of person would be a person in recovery. So a person who no longer is using, or that's an abstinence-based approach, but there's other pathways of recovery. So they may not be using the drug that they had problems with, but they may still be using other substances or alcohol. So really it's about just having real courageous conversations, honest conversations about where that person is in their readiness to, to, to do something. And then um, if they're in recovery, meaning they, you know, they, they can um, ask them, you know, be out, be honest or ask them, what are they using for support? What's their pathway of recovery? Is it faith-based? Could it be physical activity? Um, there's certainly a lot of people um, that doctors have come into contact with who maybe had a health condition that they told them, if you don't, if you continue to drink this way, you know, you we can't, you know, there's a lot of risk related to your health or your, your liver, your heart. And they stop, you know, because they, they value their health. There's also people who, because of uh, just their family situation, their marriage that, that have been able to stop. So I think it's a lot of times it's letting them know that there's a whole lot of people out here in the world, 23 million Americans in recovery that claim that they're in recovery, that and and that the question really that was asked to, to come to that was, did you once have a problem with alcohol or drug use and no longer do? So the the interesting thing about that survey was it didn't use the word recovery. It just means that people acknowledge that they've overcome something, and that's what one of the key pieces about recovery. That's interesting. I'm I'm happy to learn how that 23 million number came from. It came from which survey about have you ever had a problem with alcohol or drugs and no longer do? Yeah, that question was in a uh, the New York uh, Office of Alcohol and Substance Use Problem uh, Services, the state agency and the partnership for um, partnership to end addiction. They did a survey a number of years ago. And that was the that was one of the questions on the survey. It wasn't the only question. Yeah, did they extrapolate then from New York to the rest of the United States? They did, but you know, I just I I'm not sure if you're aware, but the National Survey on Drug Use and Health just came out. The results from 2021 just came out yesterday. They're always a year, you know, behind. But um, the interesting thing is that we've now got have a question on that 
in that national survey. And it's showing us, you know, similar results, but the questions did not use the word recovery. It, it said, did you, have you over, you know, did you want, did you once have a problem um, or an issue? Uh, yeah. So we're getting more na national data. And I, I tell everyone in their states when they're doing work, um, you know, what's the popu adult population in your state and, and multiply it by 10% because that's essentially around what it is. And it's an easy way to say, look at all those people we can be engaging in this work, you know. I think the data is, is important because it, it, it gives people hope, 23 million people, and you say 10% of, of the population. And I don't know if any of the surveys really show the pathway to recovery or, or not using because the statistic often used on the medical community is that um, of all the you know 20 million Americans who have a substance use disorder, only 10%, 12% are seeking treatment at a medical facility. So it makes the medical community look horrible. Like you're not, you're, there's this huge 90% gap of stuff that you're not doing. But I actually think that if you look at the people in recovery, you don't need a medicine for all of them. There's, it has a role. But if you look at all the people in recovery, I would bet the majority reach recovery without more drugs. Absolutely. And I, I would bet that the majority of the people never actually accessed formal treatment because mm -hmm. there's lots and lots of, we're discovering by, by engaging more people to find those stories of people who maybe, you know, their church, their church, their pastor helped them. Yeah. And then, or they were incarcerated and, and they got some support while they, it, you know, 12 step mutual aid meetings or something. And, and they came out and they got connected with resources and they didn't go to formal treatment or they never need needed medication. And so medication just for the listeners is really, we talk about for opioid addiction or for alcohol addiction, but there's so many other people with other substances that claim, you know, state that they're in recovery that don't use medication because it wasn't necessary for their their drug or their substances. Right. I think that's important because it makes a it puts a lot of guilt on the medical community, and I'm prone to that as a physician. <laughs> um, it's like, oh, you have this ninety percent gap that you're not dealing with, and I'm thinking, you know, we have a gap. You know, I'm going to own the gap that we have, that we can provide more treatment. But I think if we knew those other ways that people reach recovery, we could use that as a tool too, instead of having just a one size fits all, you know, formula that there, the gap I don't think is as wide as is put on the medical community. I agree with that. And, you know, I, I have questioned, or I've just kind of you know, we had to rethink the whole 10% gap because what I said, and I was actually at ONDCP when I asked this question in a meeting, but when they were talking about it, I said, what if, what if the, you know, that's not what people want? So like, you know, it has to be person-centered, person-driven. They need to want treatment. Right. What if what they want, which I would like to tell you more about also, but it, it's it's really that what they want is to stay alive. What they want is some um, to know, relieve pain, emotional yeah, pain. Exactly. Right, right. So when they see when they hear treatment, it's not that. It's it's I need, you know, some other things like basic needs. You know, right. That's right. So what is recovery? I know that sounds like a basic question, but what is it? Um, yeah. Is it just not using at all? Is it abstinence? Is it like losing less? Or is it, okay, once you've got one year, you're good? Or you're 30 years sober, Patty, but you still need to work on it. I don't know. what What is recovery? Yeah, you know, I wanted to make sure I mentioned that too, because I, I just say that I, I think I have a particular reason to let people know that like mostly the policymakers or the people that are just starting out to say, you know, oh yeah, they you can do it. You can get past, you know, that first year and you can do well. But really that it's self-defined. You're in recovery if you say you're in recovery. Mm -hmm. And that's an interesting concept. But SAMHSA said, and and I was in part part of the, the you know, the the consensus building process when the definition was created, mm -hmm. but the definition by SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, is 
that that recovery is a process of change through which individuals improve their quality of life or, or improve their health, wellness, and they live self-directed lives and strive to reach their full potential. So like there's so much in there, but it doesn't, what's not in there, and I do this in training all the time, is what I ask the audience, what, what's not in there? And that when what's not in there is abstinence. So the fact that, you know, it is self-defined. Um, I if if we want to do research and measure outcomes based on abstinence, that's fine if we want to do that. But really the recovery takes place when that person's, you know, um looks at their housing, their education, their family relationships, when they've repaired the damage that or the, you know, the challenges that they have, that's the recovery process. And to me, and to a lot of what we believe is that, you know, recovery really happens in a community or in a family. And um, the opposite of of addiction is, re is, is connection, right? So if that's going to happen, then how we have to incorporate that in our thinking when we try to define recovery. Um, for me, in my pathway of recovery, it is abstinence but that is not certainly not um what you know i that everybody has to define their own pathway of of recovery and, and do you think that once you're in recovery you feel like you're in recovery is it still something you need to watch because there may be some trigger something can happen and you gotta start the, the process again or You've done done this for thirty years. This is your career. It's like you don't have those triggers, or you're you're kind of over that. Well, I don't think you're ever over it. I think that what we do is, um, as a myself, as a person in recovery, is take care of the things that make me, um, you know, well. And it's about wellness. It's like. Um, taking care of my health, taking care of my family and social relationships, um, having meaningful employment, those type of things and civic engagement, having SAMHSA uh, talked about the four dimensions. Uh, the, these are uh, health, home, purpose, and community. And health, you know, is these are the things that help people maintain their recovery. And that's what recovery looks like is, and that's what we're trying to put a face and a voice on and to model is that when we have our, you know, we're taking care of our health now, you know, many people in active use don't ever see a doctor. That's the last thing they want to see. So they start to realize that getting medical care is, is really helpful and they can take care of themselves and live longer. Or they see me, an emergency doctor, right? Yeah. Um, which is not, which is not right. considered maintaining your health. I think if you're seeing me, it's a definition of not ma maintaining your health. Exactly. Right? You know, I think we we and and a lot of people just, you know, there's a number of reasons. There's socioeconomic factors. There's certain reasons why people didn't have the medical care or get the medical care. They were afraid to see a doctor to talk about their. They would discover their drug use. Or their alcohol use and you know so those are the types of things and then having a home a stable place to live that's another factor in recovery um you it's very hard to find recovery if you are couch surfing or you know don't have housing um also purpose and that could be employment or it could be going back to school it could be caring for a loved one it could be raising your kids but having a sense of purpose and then community like um, engaging in your community, civic engagement, volunteerism, or feeling like you're part of a community. And that's the beauty of the recovery movement and the recovery community is that you will find groups of people in all parts of the country that are no longer using alcohol or drugs, or they, um, you know, they're doing something positive for their, their wellness, like the running club. Like we see these things pop up and it's so exciting. Like or or a group of uh, uh, hospitality care workers in a skier resort area that all get together for their support group meetings. They have they've built a community of people in recovery. 
that's what's helping them. That's um, nice. Yeah, there's so we much. See colleges, we see colleges, you know, when my, my daughters were applying for college. They were like, do you want to live in a, um, I don't know if they called it recovery, but the more universities are having that kind of like safe space for people who want to stay drug-free or alcohol-free. Absolutely. Those are called, well, there's a lot of colleges that have substance-free dorms, which technically they're all supposed they to. should be, right? Your <laughs> age. But, right. <laughs> <laughs> but they are doing more of that. But then there's also these formal programs, which are called collegiate recovery programs. So the Association of Recovery and Higher Education is an organization that's helping to start these collegiate recovery programs all over the country. And it's really cool. There's a lot of that growing. There's also a lot of high schools now, recovery high schools. Um, so those are um, also growing. And so we see it across the spectrum, the age age groups. We're talking about the intersection of medicine and recovery or, or, or drug use. So can I ask you, Patty, if when you go to the doctor, does your doctor ask you, how's your recovery doing? Well, yeah. And I've had, I, I recently changed primary care providers when mine left. Um, and so I did a new introduction to my doctor and said, it kind of came up really because he asked me what I did for work. <laughs> So, you know, it was an easy way to say, you know, I'm a person in recovery and I haven't used it in a long time. And um, I I think, you know, that we have to have those trusting relationships with our doctors. And I encourage everyone, you know, if you're in recovery to have that conversation, you know, there's certainly some fear um, around it. There's fear that, you know, and then there's been, it's been, a, we've come a long way, like the prescribing of pain medication. Somebody who's going to have a surgery has to really think about how they're going to manage their pain if they're a person in recovery um, and work with their doctor around that and figure out, if, are there alternatives? So we want them to know about it, but we still have a long way to go because there's still a bias from many, um, and there's research that shows this when there was um, some research that said that like the patient's chart said they um, had, you know, diagnosed as substance abuse. And, um, and then there was other charts that said substance use disorder. And the perception from the doctors who has saw abuse was very negative towards their patients. Yeah, I think then, I'm familiar with that study. It was a letter, a script that was given to behavior health think nurses, not doctors. And the when the word um, addict or derogatory language was used, they were more prone to recommend punishment um, versus if you use a sub, somebody with a substance use disorder, they were recommended more to, towards treatment. There was right. a bias in, in, in that language. Um, but so what I'd like to do is, you know, have physicians train, you know, we always ask about tobacco, alcohol or drugs, but if somebody who's not using or someone in recovery, we would say, so how's your recovery going and, and how are you doing that? Any issues? And it's like you acknowledge your success actually in your medical visit with your doctor. That would be and, wonderful. Yeah. yeah. I think Senator Patrick Kennedy says that when you go to the doctor, you should get a checkup from the neck up was, I, love like, that. I love that statement. Um, so the, the pandemic has been a real challenge, right? You add more drugs, more loneliness, more isolation. We should never have called it social isolation. I mean, we shouldn't have called it physical distancing. We should, you know, and social distancing, we should call it physical distancing instead. But have you noticed that in your work? Absolutely. It's, you know, it's just devastating. We have two we have the pandemic, we have an uh, uh, addiction epidemic at the same time. And, you know, so much of it has to do with, you know, social determinants of health. Like if people don't have access, we're losing, you know, lots. I, I mean, the 30% increase from 2019 to 2020 during the pandemic, the difference in overdose deaths was huge. Um, and that all accelerated at the time, you know, in March of 2020, when the president declared or when the, de the declaration of the national emergency. And, you know, even alcohol use has increased by 21%, I think, 
during the pandemic. I know, tell people like when, when the pandemic hit, of course, I was on the front lines working in the emergency department. I was banned from the rest of the house. My family was afraid of me. I had the cooties or the COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I didn't go to the store or the kitchen for a long time. And when I went to the store after several months, I noticed that they moved all the alcohol, uh, you know, cases to the front of the store. It's like, okay, that's a change. <laughs> Right. I was actually, we, they're the first, one of the first issues that I saw was like the state of Pennsylvania, um, you know, put liquor stores in essential services. So they were, they were had to open. And they put marijuana stores in California as an essential service. Like, really, thank you for bringing me more business. (laughs) Yeah. It's interesting. Um, You know, and and there's two sides of it because I was looking at lots of debates going on at that time. You know, uh, we also we put people at risk when they don't have access to alcohol if they have potentially die from an alcohol withdrawal. You know, so what, it's like if they can't access the help that they need. And I know you're the doctor and you could talk about that, but really, I think that you know they were there was it, it, there's a lot of factors of why I, I didn't see alcohol. any lack of access to withdrawal care because the emergency departments were open and that's what we were seeing. We were seeing mental health and drugs when people with a, you know, chest pain were staying home. Um, but yeah, that interesting public health decisions, huh? Yes, it is. You mentioned uh, social determinants of health. Um, are there different social determinants for drug use? Is there, and recovery, is there a difference by gender, ethnicity, or socioeconomics? There certainly is a difference. There's, um, you know, um, our, the black and brown communities are disproportionately impacted by substance use disorder, uh, addiction. And that's, and then we also, I mean, indigenous communities as well. And then, and so with all of this coming together at the same time, the isolation, the COVID, the, the social distancing, then, you know, all of these factors related to access to care, economics, um, you know, it all it all comes together at the same time. So there is a different, there is definitely differences in the way gender, uh, ethnicity, and the socioeconomics play into uh, whether or not a person has a likelihood of become having a substance use disorder, but all of that has to do with how well they can access services as well. Um, and a lot of that is because of discriminatory pra- practices and barriers that are in place. Like there are not. Yeah, tell many- us about that. What do you? Because I know one of the things that Faces and Voices looks to is the injustices in in that access to the road to recovery what and what are you seeing that what wrongs are you trying to make right well um we have a number of you know we think about the stigma or access to treatment or um being denied uh so sometimes people are denied like these are some of the discriminatory practices is denied um uh, on a housing application they they report that they have a prior uh, criminal justice history. However, our you know much of it is related to uh, the challenges with like um, sentencing practices, you know, like and guidelines around people with low level offenses are. And now that you know that time has changed, we're looking at it differently, and we're you know, we do hope that access to basic needs like housing, employment are not, uh, that that criminal justice histories or substance use disorder histories are not going to prevent someone from getting what they need. Um, a lot of what we're, we're doing right now is looking at protecting patient privacy rights as well. So a lot of our, our work in the past couple of years has been around um, 42 CFR part two, and there's Kate, Kate, lots of cases where we have seen 
people who where it's disclosed and they're in court hearings that they are on medication, methadone, who are denied parenting rights or did, you know, denied visitation with their children. They could be denied access to. That's that's interesting when you mentioned the privacy in that one. So I was wondering where you're going to go with that, because I see as a doctor, I see it as a different way. I, I see the 42 CFR um, as a barrier to health, because if that if methadone, if that's hidden from me as an ear doctor and you need to be admitted to the hospital for appendicitis, or I'm prescribing you other drugs that may interact with uh, methadone, and I don't have that information because that's super private, then I'm delivering worse health care for you. That I don't think that there should be differences in privacy. Medical privacy should be medical privacy. Whether you got herpes, or you're using drugs, or you got HIV, or you got a brain tumor, you know, that that's different than what you're talking about, which is courts making decisions about your life because of the medicines you're taking, you know, that's, I mean, that should be private, right? Mm -hmm. But, but keeping certain diagnoses about yourself private from other doctors, to me, that doesn't make sense. Right. And well, we, we, we believe that the patient has a choice to tell the doctor and they should be, they will tell the doctor if it's going to, you know, that they have their taking uh, medication and if there's any um you know to prevent any counteractive you know well we use it like we use a prescription drug monitoring system right to also to make sure that we're prescribing safely because the medical community was under fire as you remember for many years for for hurting people for not doing that but then we but we can't do it with some drugs and some patients and that that I feel creates discrimination and puts people at risk. And I don't know if that's even something that you talk about. I'm just kind of thinking. Um, well, there's lots of different cases where um, I have, we have people that are involved with our organization that were denied life insurance because their medical records from their health insurance showed that they were, they went to treatment for substance. Yeah. So how do you, why, why would I want my substance use disorder treatment? on my, you know, but I, then I wouldn't want my high blood pressure either. Cause I could get not denied for my life insurance as well. Yeah, right. So then we, we have to treat it equally. Right. So yeah, you're right. And I, but I wouldn't want to know my asthma either. Cause then maybe I get denied some, you know, right. right? Cause they making, those people don't care about your substance use. They're just putting money and, you know, statistics on life expectancy. Right. And coming up. Um, interesting, interesting conversations. Um, but tell me, tell me other um, programs that you're proud of that uh, Faces and, and Voices are working on. Right. Um, uh, just a, another quick policy issue was the um, free application for federal student aid, the FAFSA, mm -hmm. that um, had on it a question that we were very effective in uh, ab, uh, in a campaign to have it removed. But the real the, the issue was that if people had a prior drug conviction any prior drug conviction, they could be denied financial aid, federal financial aid to go back to college. So a person mm -hmm. 10 years in recovery who wants to go back to school would not be able to get the same access to student aid, loans, and grants. Right. What has happened is that it's been changed to say that if you had any convictions while you were receiving federal financial aid. That because that's, yeah, that's a good policy. Like yeah, it opens it up. Works. Um, so that's changed. But what what we're doing um, now at Faces and Voices is we're doing, um, you know, public awareness campaigns around um, access to care for uh, really looking at our diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts, really hoping to um, be more, um, be better. You know, I think the recovery movement in general has been has neglected to look at the issues that are really affecting our our folks within minority communities and um, indigenous communities. We really need to do better about ensuring that everybody has access and there's equity. Um, and so that's a big priority for us. So we're doing a lot of uh, work and training and convenings around that. 
We created a North Star document for the recovery community for, for that. We are also uh, with our network of uh, recovery communities around, around the country are um, helping to uh, provide capacity building, helping the organizations with their nonprofit governance, their infrastructure, so that they as peer run organizations, because they're all led and run by the recovery community. Um, and so there's a lot of work to be done there about helping them get access to service financial support. So from states and federal grants, uh, we've been working on that. I like the one that we did together when I was on ODCP. You helped us out with a uh, innovative webinar where we had peer support in emergency departments doing that warm handoff. And even places around the United States, when you call 911 for an overdose, you'll get an ambulance, but you'll also get someone, a, a peer support counselor who will be there to walk you th through the process of getting it, it connected to treatment. So uh, that's one of the things we did together. I thought it was a great program. Sure. Uh, let me tell you and your listeners of more about peer recovery support because it's, um, it's, an, it's an emerging field, but it's a critical part of our workforce now in behavioral health in both mental health and substance use. There are peer support specialists, recovery coaches, peer recovery coaches, all kinds of terms that are used, but mm -hmm. essentially it's a person with lived experience of recovery who is now trained to help that uh, a person. And they may be uh, working, and, and well, this is what our network of recovery community organizations do. They employ them and then they can deploy them out to emergency departments, um, what, uh, drug courts. Um, I like that term, employ and deploy. Yeah. So they, they get to, the nice thing about them being employed by these organizations is that they get a group of other people who are doing the same thing. Oftentimes when you see an agency hire one peer or two peers, they don't really get that kind of uh, making sure we're maintaining the integrity of peer support mm -hmm. and to get the appropriate supervision. But that's like what that's what we work on a lot. And so a lot of our organizations have contracts with emergency departments or, you know, with treatment agencies where they'll do the peer support when people are in outpatient treatment. They'll also get peer support. Um, recovery coaching is a lot about working on a recovery plan that is driven by the person, the peer receiving the services and looking at their recovery capital. So it's exciting to see that a lot of what we're doing now is measuring recovery capital, which is really about the person's satisfaction with their life. You know, where are they? Are they where they want to be? What are they doing to help them in their recovery? And it's not measuring abstinence. It's measuring recovery capital, the quality of life. Um, you know, that's that's really important. And so peers, the peer work, there we have at Faces and Voices, we have a National Recovery Institute. So it's our training division and we're training peer specialists. We're training states and agencies that want to integrate it and how, how they can integrate it effectively and using best practices. And we also have our CAPRS, which is the Council on Accreditation of Peer Recovery Support Services. And that actually accredits organizations that employ peers to make sure that they're meeting standards for, for not, it doesn't certify the peers, it certifies the organization. And so there's a lot of work that we're doing around peer support right now. You know, it's interesting when you said that, like, being in recovery is self-defined, and now you said being, um, what was worse, the, you know, it's just, or you, you self-define that I'm doing well in my community, in my life and stuff. And I can't help but think, and correct me, that as an emergency physician, I, again, I see people at, at their worst, sadly, and they'll yell, I'm fine, I'm fine, I don't have a problem, you know, and there's denial in the diagnosis of substance use disorder. How do you differentiate that? Well, um, we need where they're at. So if they are not ready to say, you know, I absolutely need to stop using alcohol or drugs, we can say, well, what do you need right now? And you build that relationship with mm -hmm. them. So it's about getting them to the point. It may be that 
you know, many people who go to the emergency department um, will, if they don't have that peer support, they'll, they'll walk away with an appointment and a card that says next week you go for an intake at this treatment center. And the likelihood of them actually going is pretty slim because they, they may not, it may not be a priority in three days to go. And, and there are a lot of barriers that appointment's yeah. not there and it's hard to make it. And it's, it's not as sadly right. the pandemic affected us in a negative way to the medical cares has still, we haven't recovered that we our access to medical care. Just talk to your friends who don't have a substance disorder, how long it takes them to get into a primary care doctor visit, right? It's not so good. Well, the so the intervention of a recovery coach in the emergency department means that the doctor will see the patient. Um, they will ask the patient if they're willing, if they would be willing to meet with the recovery coach to just, you know, see what what they can do to talk to them, to help them. And then basically the recovery coach says, Hey, I've been there. I, I, I know the way out, you know, I've done this. I was where you were and they build that rapport. They build that relationship. And then they ask that they, a lot of times they'll be there until they're ready. The person's ready to leave and then make sure that they're, you know, they have a place to go to, or um, they can connect them right away to a, a or what I like is maybe you're not ready now, but maybe tomorrow you will be. Right. Right. Be, be, because your brain will clear also. You'll get your brain back and then you'll be maybe then to to think through. Yeah. It's a yeah. beautiful thing. I mean, we've seen some amazing. It is a great program. Coming out of, I think it's really started in the, um, in Rhode Island, there was a great program, the Anchor Recovery Community Center would send people into the all the emergency departments, I think, in Rhode Island started early on, and the outcomes from them were just amazing. You know, the, those that engaged, stayed engaged in treatment or actually engaged in treatment was really high when they had a recovery coach working with them. So I think it's a, it's a great model, and I think all over the country we're seeing it happening. So we had, I think that's a the great, great um, programs and, and um I like that employ and deploy because who better knows about um, and can, who has more empathy than someone who's gone through something like that. Um, we went through the um, opioid prescription crisis that now, you know, is, I would say, mostly over because it's completely, uh, it, we have less prescribing and fentanyl has just taken off to overshadow everything else. But we had some a lot of successes in learning from the opioid prescription epidemic. There was a start and a finish. We were able to turn that faucet off um, in both prevention and treatment. How do you see the analogy of what we learned from that to our current fentanyl crisis? Yeah, you know, it's so hard to... Um compare these two because the fentanyl is not coming from doctors and prescribers. And so that's it's, right. The supply chain's different. Exactly. Yeah. So yes, the, the strategies used for prevention and prescribing and, and all of that for the prescribed opioids, but we still had, you know, heroin um, and we still had, and then, but now we have um, the fentanyl and you know it's so potent and as we know there's car fentanyl and all these different it's it's it and the the so the supply chain is the biggest issue right now is that what we learned we learned a lot we learned that there's accountability from you know um, pharmaceutical companies all the way to pharmacists and and doctors, but we've come a long way in that. And thank, thankfully, there are now resources coming out to provide the medication that people need. Um, you know, I would really like to see some um, help for the families that have been impacted that lost their parents. Oh, but, yeah. You know, you think about the oh. the un the income that that they lost the 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 life they lost with a parent and those children that are now you know without that because of and there's and so there i don't think there's enough focus 
really on how to help because we have a whole culture, a whole generation of children that are have experienced trauma. We're talking about you know ninety thousand overdose deaths of people who are parents. Right. And if, and if we don't deal with that, we're creating an increased pipeline to people who are going to have a problem. Exactly. Yeah. That's, 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 what that's a good point. Know. I I think the silver lining is is the, the opioid prescription problem was done. The supply chain was a medical community, which really brought me to this whole field of addiction because I felt responsible as being part of that supply chain and, and felt like I had a vision of how to 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 end that. Um, and it, having now the illicit supply coming from, you know, China, Mexico is, is harder, but I think the answer to upstream solutions is dealing with the supply, but that doesn't mean we don't need to um, deal with treatment and support for the damages being done, but we got to close the posset. Otherwise we're just, we can never catch up. That's so sad. Um, so I think that's what I've learned. The silver lining in all of this is the medical community is engaged more than ever, maybe not enough, but more than ever, um, because we were part of the supply chain, more of us have, are becoming more tuned to the issue of addiction and ready to engage in the issue of fentanyl, methamphetamine, or any, any drugs, um, where we didn't have that attention at all in the medical field before that. Yeah. Yes, we certainly have learned a lot. It's really cool too. Like, um, I went to my doctor and um, I just happened to see, or I went to a hospital visit with taking someone to it. And I saw on the wall, you know, a poster for recovery month. And I'm like, Aww. that's ours. That's <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, and, and so like doctors now, like, and you see it everywhere, like, um, you know, need help or, have have you thought about your you know so there it's it's much more mainstream in the medical community now to be mm -hmm. talking about this and um i think you know we've touched on a lot of the like the fact that there's there's still some stigma there's still stigma there i think there always will be just like with any condition but the more we can realize that this is a health condition and that these are our family members our loved ones and that um there's treatment and there's effective treatment available mm -hmm. and that recovery is possible and that there's, you know, millions of us out there. So, you know, there's a lot of work still to do, but I think we've come a long way. We've come a long way and there, you're right. And there's still more work to do. I want to say thank you to Albert. Albert is our high school student who called in with a question today. How cool is that to have a high school kids listening to a show like that? But wow, it really speaks a lot to you, Albert, for reaching out, having a smart question. And I, 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 I see a wonderful, beautiful future ahead of you where you're really going to be able to help people in medicine or reach or whatever, you know, uh, you could change your mind of what you want to do, but it doesn't matter. You're going to be, you're going to do great for the world. And I want to say thank you to you, Patty. You are a very great voice to the faces and voices in recovery. They're very lucky to have you. 23 million people out there are very lucky to have you as their uh, leader and uh, voice, bringing inspiration and hope to people with addiction and showing that recovery is possible. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Lev. It's been a pleasure. And I hope that um, all of our listeners of your show, your podcast, will visit facesandvoicesofrecovery.org and check out what we're doing and join us. We're, we're happy to have new members and new followers. So hope to uh, hear from many of you in the future. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support of our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis, doctors educating on the harms of marijuana. Visit isaacone.org, that's I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to view their library that translates medical journals for public understanding, Listen to their speaker series and follow the science on marijuana. High Truth producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Oni Lev. 
We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths.